You're listening to Icebreakers, the podcast exploring all things Canadian and Eurasian, business, culture, and personalities. The series is produced by Serba, the Canada-Eurasia-Russia Business Association. We're a non-profit supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. I'm your host, Nathan Hunt, one of the founders of Serba and former chairman of the National Board. I invite you to tune in regularly for valuable insights relating to the region. Today we are hosting the Honorable Stockwell Day, Canadian legend, for many years a leading figure in the Conservative Party, one-time leader of the opposition in the House of Commons, and holder of numerous cabinet positions in the Carper government, including President of the Treasury Board, Minister for the Asia-Pacific Gateway, Minister of International Trade, Minister of Public Safety, and Leader of the Canadian Alliance. Have I missed anything, Stockwell? <laughs> well, I got a pretty good run of uh, a, a good time of competition with uh, Prime Minister Jean Chrétien when I was the Leader of the Opposition. So that's a little period of time I always like to reflect on with great warmth. In any case, you have direct experience in both government and business, uh, over 25 years of experience in uh, the public sector, the private sector, and uh, we're here to pick your brain, if we can do that. Tell us something about your first impressions of the countries or the cities in the region, in, in Russia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, the former Soviet Union, uh, in your political capacity. I know you traveled there often. What, uh, uh, when did you travel and what were some of your impressions? Well, I mean, if you're talking about the the whole region, Nathan, I would go back as far as about 1993 to Ukraine, and then I was asked to speak in Kiev. This is just after, you know, the Soviet Union was coming apart, of course, and to be there right at the transition point to see the, I guess you would call it the leftovers or the or, or the strongly leftover effects of you know, 70 odd years of economic deprivation and basic freedoms, et cetera. And uh, to really, and especially to be in, in Moscow and even Ukraine at that time, meeting with people who were still sort of uh, blinking their eyes a bit at the, the fairly newfound freedom and really feeling their way. People, you know, pinching themselves saying, is, is this real? Have we really broken free from these things that held us down for so many decades. And there was a feeling of great optimism, but also a feeling of great challenge, especially once we, we got into Russia. It was very much a feeling of the wild, wild west. Things were really starting to break over. And there was, it, it was just a, an exciting time to be there, challenging because uh, it was so new to everybody. And uh, you know, great things were happening and not so great things were happening. But really, it was a time of highly charged excitement and, and a time of great optimism for the future. I was honored to be asked to, uh, you know, to, to, to be there. So that was 93 and meeting with people at the time like Boris Yeltsin was pretty interesting stuff. That must have been fascinating. What was it like to meet with Boris Yeltsin? Good Lord, uh, what a... What a figure in the 19th, in the 20th century. Well, the first thing I received from him, one of his campaign lapel pins. That again, it was it was very exciting because you know you try and and put yourself in the hearts and minds of people who have literally been locked down for over seven decades, 
and now they're they they, they burst free. And of course, uh, Boris Yeltsin, uh, I, I can't say that I got to know him on a really close basis, but in some ways, Nathan, he was representative of everything that was happening. Um, in some ways, you know, very outgoing and very positive, and in other ways, you know, just trying to really, when you look back at what government was trying to do then. He fairly represented, in my view, some of the mixed emotion of what people were feeling. So, you know, it was an exciting time, I, I tell you, to go into uh, what we would call the Department of Defense, uh, that place that we have seen in, you know, Cold War movies where the gates swing open. You go in there and to sit with some of the generals at the time, we were still generals in the army, and they had, they had obviously I realized this was a, a new life now, it was a new universe. But to hear them say, look at these large maps in the, in the octagonal room there and have them say, you know, this is where we used to plot the destruction of the West. The, I mean, these are pretty sobering moments. Yeah, moments I, I, I'll, I'll never forget. I, I think we can sometimes just just with the passage of time, we can forget what a stunning time this was really in world history, certainly in, his, in the history of that region. And it was exciting to be there and and see it to go through the, the the streets of Moscow, which you know were just people were just starting to emerge in terms of realizing you can be free, you can do things. I can tell you the one place, and this is not an ad for McDonald's by any means, but the one place where there were young people, everybody was smiling and there was positive energy, was going into McDonald's and realizing you could actually get a Big Mac in Moscow. But people there were getting paid. Young people were getting paid for the first time. They had uniforms on that weren't military uniforms. Uh, they were being trained to, you know, to smile at people and welcome people. At the same time, walking past some of the places where prisoners had been held for, in some cases, all their lives. Um, it was a momentous time. And Boris Yeltsin uh, was clearly uh, representative of the, I would say, the positive turbulence of the time. Did you get a chance to see any other Western icons when you were in Moscow? Well, it's funny you mentioned that uh, companies were, were just starting to set up. Uh, we went to a pizza hut. Uh, now, let, let me make it clear. We we're eating lots of good Russian food, too. Um, but we were in Moscow. You do as the Muscovites do. And so they were flooding and filling places like McDonald's. And in some parts of the city, and depending where you were, things were still in somewhat scarce supply. Uh, we met with some representative there, I guess you would call them uh, public service officials, not this, this wouldn't be the uh, elected people. Uh, they took us really to, at home to their uh, very meager apartment on about the uh, 20th floor of an apartment building. Um, and, and there we had just, you know, a, a dinner of some bread and cucumber and uh, some of the real, just the basic necessities of life. So there was still a lot of contrast there. Going in a pizza hut, one of the things, and this was interesting, I realized that already the entrepreneurial spirit had kicked in because if you had American dollars or you were perceived to be Canadian or American or European, pizzas were about the same price, relatively speaking. I think a large is about $15 or something. But I, I noticed on the on the Russian side of the restaurant where the uh, people from Moscow were going in, they were buying, they were using their, their own currency, and it was about the equivalent of about a dollar or two dollars. And the, the banks weren't functioning all that well at that point. And I'm going to interrupt you. They had two separate restaurants, didn't they, in Pizza Hut? They had one side where you would buy your pizza with U.S. dollars, and they had a separate price for that. And they had one side where you would pay with Russian rubles. And you had Correct. a separate price for that. Isn't that right? 
Correct. And and if you wandered on the other side with your American dollars, they would charge you, you know, the, the, the full price. And it was one of those things. Also, we wanted we all wanted to buy a few things to take back home uh, in the various markets. I could not convert my money at a bank or a store. These things weren't, weren't advanced that far. So I had to use the higher price or you pay the higher price for the U.S. dollars. But there was an open air uh, vegetable and fruit market where people from all over Russia, I guess, brought their wares. And it, and I wandered in there. It was very busy. I, I just I, you know, wanted to exchange the money. And somebody pointed me to a, a, an elderly lady who was selling some fruits and vegetables. And I went over there. And, you know, she didn't understand English. I didn't understand any Russian. But through sign language and holding up U.S. dollars, she got the message that I wanted to do a, a currency exchange. And, she uh, she, she knew reached, what a dollar was. <laughs> she certainly knew what a dollar was, Nathan. And she reached down in her boot, actually, in the, the, the thick wool sock that was protruding up above her boot. And she pulled out a bunch of dollars uh, and a bunch of rubles. And she showed me some and uh, her money. And I showed the currency that I had. And we just did a trade right there. Neither of us spoke English. We knew who we wanted. We established some a fair price. She was happy. I was happy. And the next day, I was eating $2 pizza. So. People find a way, but it was that type of right from, you know, very sophisticated things that were happening to very basic human relationships and human exchange. Isn't that interesting? You know, and, and she could have been arrested for that a mere five years earlier. And yet when you did it, it was a, it was a normal uh, part of everyday life, it seems. Yeah. Everything was wide. When I say wide open, I mean, everything was wide open. I have to say um, at one point, uh, the cab got pulled over uh, by the local police cab driver just uh, i didn't know what we'd done he just started swearing and police officer came up to the window and said some things and the guy reached in and pulled some of his currency out of his wallet and gave it and the police officer walked away and you know we realized well we've just experienced a shakedown there I, again it was the wild west things were just breaking open and people were trying to sort of find their way the good and the bad and the ugly was was happening i recall walking um into a subway and looking at the beautiful, gorgeous painted murals on the subway walls. And the thing that struck me was no graffiti. And of course, you know, if you had tried graffiti, either in pre or post uh, 90s time, you probably would have arrested or been shipped off to Siberia or something. But that that struck me, you know, that there were areas where there was a high degree, I guess, of order and right there in the same subway, in the subways themselves, there were uh, religious groups, you know, yards from them. There were people selling uh, wide open, well, I'll say Playboy type magazines, if I, I can use that. Right. I mean, everything was wide open. Nothing was uh, regulation was just beginning. And that was sort of a metaphor of what was happening in the business community. Also, things were wide open. We look back now, we realize some people were on the way. Some Russians are on the way to becoming you know, billionaire oligarchs and others were on the way to trying to open a small business or operate a farm. So you saw it all. It was a stunning time. What countries did you visit? You talked about Ukraine. You talked about Russia. Did you see any of the other newly independent states? Uh, at that time, it was those two. I remember meeting with, we had some agriculture representatives with us and meeting with uh, some farmers. Well, first of all, many of these farmers, we were showing them, you know, pictures and things of uh, and talking about farms in Canada. 
and the size of farms. And one of the people who was traveling with us, he was actually a, was an MLA, as I recall, uh, but he was also a farmer. So he, he talked about the size of his farm and he gave a quarter section. They asked him, you know, how many people operated his farm back home? And he said, well, my, myself and my son, my wife. Uh, so I guess three of us. And they said, well, a, a lot of land that size where they live, there would be maybe 150 people that would be trying to eke out some existence on that uh, with you know poor mechanization. If the tractor broke down, there was no incentive, of course, because everybody got the same amount of pay mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. or a monthly stipend. So they, it was fascinating hearing these compar- comparisons. And they frankly had a hard time believing that a quarter section of land, never mind farmers as we know who've got you know, dozens of sections of land. They just could not believe that this man, his wife, and his son were operating. And then, and then when you start talking about yields, you know, they, they simply could not believe it was possible to get the kind of yields of wheat or various uh, lentils, whatever it was. And actually, it's one of the unsung stories of McDonald's was they actually uh, began to show farmers how to do things like uh, low irrigation, certain types of tillage that would preserve the soil and uh, sell them certain types of equipment where they could actually get really good yields similar to what we were getting in North America. And then, you know, raising beef, how to do that in a productive way, how to make sure uh, things are taken care of and animals are cared for. And, you know, it was every sector that you looked at other than perhaps military sophistication it was wide open and, a, and an amazing learning time back and forth. And did you have a chance to interact with the military? That's interesting that you said that. Well, as I said, we met with military, with some of the uh, uh, leaders of the armed forces at the time when we were in Moscow. When, when I look at, at that time, which had been about 1993, and then I uh, hit the forward button, then when I was Minister of Public Safety, to be meeting with military again, and to actually go to some of their training sites. Now, this would be, you know, 10, now jump forward 15 years in Moscow, for instance, and see the level of change, see the amount of change. They had some setups training um, anti-terrorist teams, for instance. So we visited one site where they had a, an aircraft that was set up for the purpose of, uh, you know, imagining it had been taken by terrorists or, or taken control of, and then how they would do their uh, an assault on an airplane with passengers in it, for instance. Kind of a, a drill site, as it were, yeah? Yeah. They showed us their, their police sites where they were training police in terms of crowd control. And I said to them, look, uh, I need, on some of the tactics, I said, I need to be really frank with you. We could never, and we never would, use these type of tactics uh, on a crowd of people to control a mob situation in Canada or the U.S., I can assure you. Having said that, and then... Um, a couple of years later at the Sochi site, which was being prepared for the Olympics to see the degree of sophistication that had developed and the understanding you've got now people coming for the Winter Olympics. And you, you've got uh, people coming from all different backgrounds and all different countries. So it was, you know, over time to keep to, to go back and to see the growth and to see the change and to see some things, frankly, that maybe weren't changing that much. Yeah, it was fascinating uh, evolution. So you got to Ukraine, you got to Russia. Did you ever get to, to any other countries in the region during your time? Well, Kazakhstan, for sure. Uh, my first visit there, but about uh, 2008, it was a marvelous time because if you know uh, of the then capital. Yeah, it was Astana then. Right. 
really a brand new city. I mean, you, you, you're flying across what we would call the steppes or the prairies, and you're seeing a lot of, frankly, some pretty antiquated villages, etc. cetera. And, and, and to come to Astana, which was in so many ways, so developed architecturally, the infrastructure was fantastic. The, the mood in the city was vibrant as, let's face it, a lot of it was oil and gas related, uh, other businesses emerging. And now you were seeing, now I was seeing these, but you know, young people in their twenties and in their thirties and forties, uh, very entrepreneurial, very excited, uh, looking positively to their own economic futures, uh, coming up with all kinds of uh, innovations and inventions in their various industries, whatever that was. It was exciting to be there. And then to go back again a couple of years later on a security-related conference to see that mood, to see that development and the energy and how life had changed, again, from Soviet era to uh, a modern uh, free enterprising, free market system. Uh, it, it was really exciting. I can remember you opening the the uh, Canadian embassy, the first Canadian embassy in the new capital of Astana, which today, of course, is Nur Sultan. Yeah, I got to ask, did you ever get a chance to meet Borat personally? <laughs> uh, he must have been on one of his North American tours. Thankfully, uh, <laughs> I didn't run into him. Um, you know, it's that's a great question because... I mean, let's face it, obviously that's entertainment, but one of the downsides of that type of entertainment is if, if nobody had been, you know, for, for most people who haven't visited, and certainly places like uh, Astana, uh, now now called, I think the name was, uh, to Nur Sultan, you know, when you, when you stereotype people, it shows the negative side of that because people there were gracious, they were friendly, very worldly in terms of understanding the way things, the modern world, in terms of sophistication of education, I could tell you in many areas, they probably uh, are ahead of Canadian students in many areas in terms of, of knowledge. You know, okay, comedic, but definitely not a fair characterization. These were, uh, these were smart, positive, uh, forward-looking generation of people that were, you know, it was just tremendous to be around. Let's talk about business a little bit. What opportunities do you see, knowing that Canadian exporters, by the way, are at a bit of a disadvantage vis-a-vis their G7 competitors since uh, uh, the EDC, you know, the Export Development uh, Corporation of Canada, will not finance trade, at least to, to Russia. I know they, they will look at trade to the other independent states of the former Soviet Union. So that's, I guess that's one question. What do you think about that policy? Is that helping? Is that changing Russian policy? Is that helping Canada or, or helping Russia or hurting Russia in any way? Uh, and secondly, having discussed that, what are the opportunities for Canadian uh, business in, in, in Russia and Kazakhstan and Ukraine and the other countries of the former Soviet Union? Anytime you're talking about distance, then there, is, uh, there are some barriers and some economic disadvantages to overcome. And I would say, no question, our European, um, UK and other uh, friends would have an advantage because they can close that gap in terms of transportation costs, wherever it might be. You know, anything to do with <laughs> cold weather technology for sure, but that cuts a wide swath. You know, you're talking about building standards, infrastructure, you're talking about roads, um, oil and gas development. So there are certain things that are clearly unique to Canada that uh, we can have some obvious positive exchange on, on agriculture. 
anything to do with infrastructure, because as I said, of our, our own shared uh, technology and some of our cold weather challenges. When it comes, you know, an interesting one I, I found is on the aspect, especially now with COVID, um, so much distance education is, is becoming refined and improved all the time. Canada has uh, both in the public and the private sector uh, leading edge technology and leading edge teachers and, and, and institutions that, that are and would be very attractive to people in places like Kazakhstan. So I think there's some great opportunity there. I noticed uh, when I was there and doing some uh, on a recent conference call that was put together by, um, by Serba, they are developing rapidly in the area of distance education, virtual education. There's some great opportunities there that, that, that can be shared. So no question, it can, there are things that can be overcome. You know, even in, through my life in politics, I've always struggled in this particular area, Nathan, to be really frank. People say, and I, you know, I spent a lot of time in China, um, and obviously clearly in no way agree, support, or would want to in any way um, uh, hold up a regime that crushes human rights. So let, let's use, let, let's take Russia out of the equation for a minute. But whenever you talk about sanctions, there's a, a good question on how effective there are, they are, because there are other countries that will, in most cases, that will simply go around that. They will wind up continuing to be prosperous when you're not. So if you're going to be putting sanctions in place, you really have to look at the best way they are most effective. And are you hurting the people there more than actually advancing their cause. Uh, the thinking is put sanctions on, that'll get the, low, the the broad population upset. They'll put pressure on their nasty leadership and they'll turn them around. But it doesn't work out that way in most cases. What sanctions do is they actually increase the power of, the, of those in power. Uh, now they have less resources. They have left, less you know, to, to function with and more power goes to the ones in power. So it's, it's really a delicate question sanctions can be a double-edged sword they end up uh, hurting the the, the the country of course that's the recipient of sanctions but also the country that uh, that inflicts them no they really they really can and then there's the whole question of you know are you going to be consistent in your sanctions so let's let's say we talk about sanctions against russia and yet there are a number of nations i won't even bother mentioning i don't want to get any of my colleagues in government uh, necessarily under pressure here but who have terrible human rights records, and yet we deal with quite freely. Countries that do not allow, for instance, any freedom of religion, any freedom of expression, any freedom of speech, countries where you would be locked up, jailed, or worse if you criticize the leadership, and yet we deal openly and freely with them. So it's always a challenge. Uh, I think there is a time and a place, but it has to be done carefully, and I always feel badly for the broader population in any of those countries because you, in most cases, they do not represent leadership that is being authoritarian and dictatorial, and it's the broader population that suffers. Do you think there's a chance that EDC would revise its policy to allow Canadian companies to, to sell to the Russian Federation? Is that a non-starter? You know, the, the EDC stopped financing uh, exports, and yet Russian policy hasn't changed in the last eight years. That, that's quite correct. That's a great observation. Um, when I was... Uh, Minister of International Trade, EDC, reported to me, and I saw a 
of course, I spent a, a lot of time with EDC. We had good policies in place, very effective. And so EDC, uh, rightly so, will always be uh, servant to the political, uh, you know, to the governing party of the day in, in Canada. That's the way it works. And is it possible to change? It would only change if there were, you know, the representatives of government, members of parliament, the various ministers, bringing a case within to, to the cabinet of the government of the day. So in this case, it would be to the liberal government. But again, let, let's use another country so we don't look like we're just focusing on Russia. When I was Minister of International Trade, I brought to, brought to the attention of our government that uh, Canada has a good history in terms of understanding the maintenance, the con safe construction of nuclear facilities. I'm talking about for power, not for armament. Right. There, there are some Canadian companies that work around the world when it comes to doing the maintenance, for instance, on nuclear facilities and the, the Canadian companies who, who lead the world, quite frankly. But we were at that point, when I was still ministers, this would be 2007-ish, not able to really do a lot of work with India because of some past incidents there, uh, a number of us actually began to bring pressure on our own government within cabinet and saying, look, um, you know, there's there are many sites in India where Canadian companies could benefit with the maintenance, with the ongoing sale of our um, world leading reactors. And we were being shut out because of a, a previous sanction policy. So these things can change over time and they change from within our government itself, you know, there was a lot of opposition to that, to, to uh, changing our policy vis-a-vis uh, -vis India. Uh, but, you know, we got to change. So um, it helps when the country who is being sanctioned, it helps when they start to become good actors, not bad actors. But uh, yes, it can change, but the change, it's, it's political change and political pressure from within that makes that happen. And it takes time for sure. You've touched the Stockwell on the issue of energy. I know that you've been involved in clean energy yourself. What are what are some opportunities that you see for for cooperation between uh, Canada and the nations of Eurasia in that area? Well, there's some great opportunity there, Nathan. Especially, uh, I mean, in a number of areas. But for instance, some of the progress that's being made on hydrogen and the development of hydrogen for energy, Canada is frankly leading in that field. And that comes directly from your oil and gas reserves there. And that actually can also be used to power pipelines and do that in a way which can bring them close to, if not right to, zero emission standards. And countries like Kazakhstan, even countries like Russia, are continually under pressure to meet some of the international demands for emissions reductions. So Canada being leader there, I believe has some great opportunity, Canadian companies, to sell with or in some cases collaborate with that want to know more and that are moving in this area. So what you've got is mutual collaborative issues, both on the research and development side, on the business side, and then together working to reduce emissions. So there's some uh, tremendous opportunity there uh, with these type of exchanges and some 
like we've done and uh, as you've been involved with on the conference side, international conferences. So what you're doing is you're helping business, you're helping research and development, you're lowering emissions, and it's win-win all around. That's interesting what you just said. What I heard you say, I think, is that you know some Canadian investors, some entities that have money to invest, that are willing to, uh, to finance that, uh, the development of that business. Correct. Are, are, they, are they looking at Russia? Are they looking at Kazakhstan? Are they looking at Ukraine? Are they looking at any combination of the above? They're not ruling out anything, uh, Nathan. And frankly, they are you know, p- people who are responsible either for their shareholders or for their own uh, investors. So obviously they want to be, they have to be uh, profitable and so they should be. The reason there's excitement about that type of activity is you're knowingly involved in something that is having a positive effect globally and environmentally. So, I mean, I'm working with some people who quite literally are putting the word and the message out there saying, show us you've got a viable process related to hydrogen and we will invest. And uh, of course, there will be a return on their investment. That's the way it works and should work that way. Um, but, but you know, it's a message we're sending out there. Uh, show us what you're doing and show us how it might work and we can work together. Oh, that's fascinating. It's great to hear that there is still room for potential in spite of the, the political differences we have, that uh, perhaps uh, Canada and the countries of Eurasia can find ways to, to uh, uh, benefit each other in the new normal that we, that we experienced. Do you, you think that's the case? The, the, the opportunity is there, and I've seen enough, and you know, others have spent more time in those regions than I have, but I've seen enough to know of the willingness, the wanting to collaborate, um, you know, building bridges across international lines across oceans in ways that are positive, well, positive for business, positive for the planet, uh, positive on the education side. Um, it, it's great opportunities. We, I just, we just have to have our eyes open to them and be willing to take some of the risks that are always incumbent in that. You've said once that you do not deal in any confidential information. You said, what I do is provide advice. What would be your Number one piece of advice to Canadian investors considering uh, investing in Russia or the other countries of the region. Two words, go there. <laughs> no, really, just, I mean, I, mean, I'm, I mean, literally just go there. You know, with a lot of globe trotting, if we can call it that, uh, as Minister of International Trade, uh, one thing I can say, and now I'm, I'm out of politics, so I don't have to, you know, try and look like I'm just supporting a particular government. Our trade offices around the world and our, our trade commission offices, really, Nathan, are, are unparalleled. And I say that, like I said, I, I'm not the minister now. I'm nothing to gain by saying this. But um, first of all, there are business people, men and women, who just go and they just get it done. You know, uh, There are others who've been successful also by, by using our, our, our trade offices. When you put the combination of our trade offices, possible funding from on the private side or from EDC, you just you go there, you contact your, the Trade Commission offices before you go, you tell them what it is you're looking for, they work, they'll set up meetings. You know, we've got this network of, frankly, really committed people on the public service side in international trade, uh, it's called Global Affairs now, uh, who really know, they spend time, they know what's going on in these different countries, and go there. I just, I, sorry to sound overly simplistic, I would use the organizations and the intel that comes from organizations like Serva, opportunities are there. And um, 
we've heard in the past, go west, young person, or go east, young person. So I would say go west or whatever part of the planet. But uh, the opportunities are great in Eurasia. It's just an exciting, dynamic place to be. Well, I have to agree with you, and I and I will also agree with your echo your sentiments regarding the caliber of the Canadian Trade Commissioner Service. We have had excellent support and service and understanding from trade commissioners uh, in in Russia, in Kazakhstan, in Ukraine, in Uzbekistan, and all of the other countries in which we're active. So we appreciate very much the uh, effort that uh, Global Affairs Canada has put into that. Just to conclude, some 30-second answers. What is your number one priority in life right now? Keeping my family and enjoying the happiness of my family. I've got a bunch of grandkids. I, I have to say, I mean, I like to say that's always been my priority. I guess my family could say, well, you were gone quite a bit for a while there. But yeah, my family. And so when I say that, that broadens out to mean opportunities I want to see in, in Canada and frankly in other countries. But in Canada, I want to see uh, the types of uh, policies and principles in place so that my grandkids can truly be and do whatever they want to be and whatever they want to do. And there are government policies that enhance those opportunities and there are government policies that do not enhance those opportunities. So as I look to doing what I still can to, I mean, I'm still involved in business. I still work for ver with various businesses, but it's all about opportunities for the future, for the next generation. What is it that made you a leader? Stockwell Day, what made you a leader? I think, you know, when I, when I talk about, think about what uh, got me into government in the first place was really working, I was working in the private sector at the time. And my wife and I, with our, our, our kids were young and we were looking at the education possibilities for them. And right at that time, this would be mid eighties, there was a lot of people just looking for uh, things like choice in education. The, um, uh, public system had a certain array of choices, but we realized, you know, in many ways, as you know, we become highly individ individualistic in terms of our choices in life, whether it's, uh, you know, coffee or television channels or social media networks. We be all become uh, very much focused on our own choices. We worked, this was in Alberta, with the government of the day to develop a broader array of choices and alternatives in education. There was families who wanted their kids more exposed to the arts, for instance, and they realized this was difficult within a public system, possibly, um, to have an arts-based focus. And there were those who, want, who had a focus on athletics. Then there were those on the uh, freedom of religion side. There were, at that time, there were schools just developing uh, for the Muslim community, the Jewish community, Christian community. There were those who had no particular faith bent at all, but they wanted more, they wanted freedom to travel. Uh, with their kids. And so to be able to have it was some of the early stages of distance education that we, a uh, group of us, actually worked with government and made some, uh, and I would just play the small part of it, but made some very positive policy changes. And at the time, and I think still, Alberta probably leads the country in terms of alternate forms of education to meet the various needs of, of its people. And so in doing that and seeing that we made some headway, began thinking, and my wife and I began thinking, well, if we could see some positive things there, maybe we should just look at getting into government. I, I think in life, Nathan, when we see things uh, that, that we say, you know, I'd like to see this done, or I'd like to see that accomplished. And if we see, just as you look at a business opportunity, if nobody else is doing it, you'll try and move in the gap. I could see there were some policies that would benefit the broad population that weren't being done in government. Education was one of them at the time. 
uh, and then there were others. And so that kind of drew me into the, uh, I guess, reluctantly, I think a leader is somebody who serves and uh, I try to see myself imperfectly as someone who wants to uh, serve some of the broader needs in the population. So that's what drew me into it. When people say they want to support you in a particular endeavor, I think more times than not, probably reluctantly saying, well, okay, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's get it done. So trying to inspire others to do things they always say, and you've heard it before, uh, if you want to get something done in life in business or politics, uh, hire people who are smarter than you are. I always found that very easy to do. So <laughs> that's a, um, that's a funny know, comment. <laughs> so I would, you know, zero in on things that I think would cause overall improvements in policy and then work with people who are pretty smart to uh, help get them put in place. So anything I was ever able to do and in terms of leadership or accomplishments, uh, I, I like to say, well, there's, you know, two reasons if I ever was successful, that the grace of God and the grace of my wife, you know, were probably the the uh, only two things that allowed for successes. Any mistakes I made, I, I take full responsibility for for those. Those are two great motivators. I can tell you in uh, in our business association, I also have no trouble finding people more intelligent than myself. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, if we uh, look around, we don't have to look too far. We don't have to look too far, indeed. But uh, let me just say, first of all, thank you for your time today. And uh, uh, thank you also for your service, for your many years of service to Canada, to uh, uh, the Canadian relationship with Russia, to the Canadian relationship with Kazakhstan, to the Canadian relationship with Ukraine, and the Canadian relationship with all other countries of the uh, uh, former Soviet Union. I know that you've uh, made an accent. You, you, you went out of your way to emphasize the importance of development of those relationships were the beneficiary, as were all other business participants in, uh, in that part of the world. And we appreciate very much the time and the effort that you uh, exerted during your time in office. So thank you for that as well. Well, your comments are kind and overly generous, and uh, you're, you're being unnecessarily humble towards yourself because um, when I talk about people and uh, people who understand how things work, people in the public and private sector, uh, you're one of those people, Nathan, who made things happen, and we, we looked to you. We still look to you, but uh, thank you for your great contribution, contribution also. Oh, thank you, Stockwell. I appreciate it. We have uh, been joined today by Stockwell Day, former Minister of International Trade, uh, former leader of the opposition in the House of Commons, uh, and a great friend to Serba and a friend to the Canadian people. Thank you so much for your time, Stockwell. Спасибо. Bye-bye. Большое спасибо. До свидания. You've been listening to Icebreakers, the podcast produced by Serba, a nonprofit business association supporting trade, investment, and good relations between Canada and the countries of Eurasia. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can join our LinkedIn group to send questions to guests and find more information about the podcast series in general on our website at www.serbanet.org. Thanks for tuning in.